My guest today is Andrew Clavin. He is a famous uh, fiction thriller writer, suspense, um, and he also has a phenomenal nonfiction book called The Great Good Thing. He has a podcast on the Daily Wire called The Andrew Clavin Show, and his life is just as interesting as is his writing. Um, Mr. Clavin, it's a pleasure to have you on. That's yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So the, the first thing I want to talk about is at the end of The Great Good Thing, you bring up the famous, um, I guess, um, description of G.K. Chesterton's uh, journey into uh, the faith, the English yachtsman. Um, for I am that man in a yacht, I discovered England. Um, so what is it exactly did you discover? Well, what I discovered was that the culture that I loved so much, the uh, the values that it had inculcated in me and that I was absolutely certain were true values and human values and uh, eternal values. All of them had come out of this one book out of the out of the Bible and had permeated the society. And so where I had gone looking for a sort of new thing, a thing that what was the next step of this culture, what I had found was the ending. I, I had taken in this long journey to find only that I was standing on the ground uh, exactly where I had begun. Uh, it reminds me always of this T.S. Eliot quote, which I can't get exactly, but it was basically after all our journeying, we find ourselves back where we began and we see it, we know it for the first time. And, uh, and so it, it really was a, a weird experience because so much of what has happened in the what is now called the postmodern or even the post-postmodern world has been a question of analysis, has been breaking things down in their component parts and then sort of arguing that they're a fantasy. Gender is a fantasy, social status is a fantasy, race, you know, everything is a is a social construct. But it turns out no, those are those social constructs are actually built on fairly solid ground. And it's the solid ground that we really have to defend. And it's not an mm. illusion at all. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about how um, pagan stories are God expressing himself through the minds of poets using such images as he found there, while Christianity is God expressing himself through what we call real things. Um, and so my, my sort of question is, you know, we look to the Bible, but do we think that God also is is giving part of himself through through the poets and through the other pagan stories and through the sort of mythic um, um, legends that we all read and, and literature at oh, large? Well, absolutely. I, you know, I have a book coming out next year about how uh, my understanding of scripture has been deepened by reading the romantic poets, some of whom weren't believers at all. Uh, and yet they were looking for something which I think illuminated for me the Bible in a, in a new way and in a very rich way uh, that didn't change the words of the Bible, but just gave me a different entry point into it. Look, either the Bible is true or it's not true. If it's true, then everything leads to it. You know, all roads will lead to it if you understand them rightly. And even uh, bad things, uh, even bad ideas lead to it. One of my experiences in conversion uh, was reading the Marquis de Sade, who I think is one of the only honest atheists who ever lived and who put forward the idea that that's where we get the word sadism we get from the Marquis de Sade. He put forward the idea that if there's no God, then you're perfectly justified in, in torturing other people for your own pleasure. And I thought that's actually true if there is no mm -hmm. God. You know, <laughs> I thought, and it's true, but it's 
a, an image of hell. And so it actually was the end of my atheism at that moment. That was when I turned back from atheism. I didn't find God, but at least I started the ship started sailing the other direction. So all roads are going to lead to the truth if you follow them in truth. In 2007, Christopher Hitchens was on Peter Robinson's show, um, Uncommon, Uncommon Knowledge, and this exact sort of issue came up about can there be a moral law um, without a moral lawgiver? And Christopher Hitchens said um, that he finds the insinuation appalling that he would not know right from wrong if he was not supernaturally guided. And, and so my question is, why do we have to have a uh, quote-unquote moral lawgiver in order for there to be a moral law? Couldn't it just be evolution? <laughs> uh, no, the, the answer is no. Uh, and the funny thing, it always makes me laugh. Christopher Hitchens was one of the great prose writers of his day. And it always made me laugh that the minute he got on this subject uh, of God, he became foolish. And the things that he said made absolutely no sense. I find the same thing true of Steven Pinker, a very intelligent writer of psychology and science. The minute he gets on the subject uh, he know, about which he knows nothing, but he's very declarative about the non-existence of God, it, his arguments just don't make any sense. Not only can there not be law without a lawgiver, they can't be good without an ultimate good. We must be moving toward, uh, we must be judging good and bad against something, right? You can't just say, I mean, because otherwise you get into what I call the toddler uh, dilemma, which is if you keep asking the question why, uh, you don't know why, you know, you say, well, I do good by instinct, by evolution. Why? Why should you evolve to do good and why should it be good? And why should you continue to do it if the benefit to you in any given moment uh, is in dishonesty and uh, and in evil. But in order for there to be good, you must be judging it against something. There must be an ultimate good. Uh, you're either closer to it or for, further away. And I'll go beyond that and say that ultimate good has to be a consciousness because there is no uh, good without free consciousness. A, a hurricane may kill millions of people or hundreds of people, uh, but it's not evil. Uh, a guy with a gun killing one person is evil because he has made that decision to do something. And the same is true of good. You know, spring is nice, but it's not good unless it was given to us. It's those uh, conscious decisions. So there has to be an ultimate good against which to judge good and evil. And that ultimate good has to be a consciousness. And I think the moral order is as good a, a evidence. I don't believe in improving the existence of God because that would strip us of our free will. But I think the moral order is is very firm evidence uh, that there is a both a lawmaker and an ultimate good. When I was a, a little boy, my dad would take me bass fishing. And uh, one time he had the great idea that we were going to make our own stink bait. And if you've ever made stink bait, you know that it uh, comes from a very smelly form of cheese. Now, some cheese is smelly and some cheese is more smelly. But I don't think that anyone would argue that there is some, you know, absolute maximum smelliness from which all cheese is measured. Um, is it possible that morality could operate like that in a relative cheese-to-cheese -cheese sense, if you catch my drift? No, because what, what you're saying goes beyond that. The ultimate, the fact that it is a bad odor suggests that there is something against which you're, you're judging it, which is a good odor. And ultimately, uh, there is this sense that beyond the physical world that we we know there is something even better that we are judging it against. That's what I, that's what I think the words Jesus spoke in parables was not just to disguise things from the unknowing, but it was also to communicate the fact that ordinary life has a meaning. If I tell you a story and I say uh, there were two men and one of them spent all, you know, took all his money and spent it and came back and he was forgiven, you immediately know 
where the moral of that story is. You, you cannot hear that story without giving it some kind of moral. And that is that supernatural level that is, is the meaning of the level that we're on. And so even though you can say in, in the physical world, there doesn't have to be an ultimate smelly cheese, you cannot say that there's the, another level than mm. physical life. Uh, a moment ago, a few moments ago, a few questions ago, you, you said something to the effect of, if the Bible is true, everything else follows. You talk a little bit about biblical interpretation in your book, The Great Good Thing. Um, my question is, how do you interpret the Bible? I know that you have uh, pretty solid Greek knowledge, but um, you know, is it literally true? What, what are your sort of biblical hermeneutics? Well, I, I think the, the, the Bible is the book that God wants us to have. Um, about the world, but I do believe it's written by men. I mean, when I hear people, when I hear people say, uh, you know, St. Paul said something, and this is the word of God, it's literally not the word of God because God is actually in the Bible speaking. I mean, you can tell because it's in red in a lot of editions. And so that, you know, we have a word of God and the rest of our people acting in the story that God is telling. And I think that's a very important distinction to make. It doesn't mean you dismiss uh, the uh, inspiration of Paul. That would be ridiculous. But it does mean that you understand that the core of this, you know, think of it like a flower, the center of the flower is the word of God. And, and coming out of it are all the things uh, that people did in, the, in these meetings with God that bring him to life for us. So I, I get, you know, I, I think, look, there's going to be room for interpretation of any book just like there's room for interpretation of life, right? We all see life and we have different interpretations. So there's going to be different interpretations. But I do feel that, that Jesus said some very, very painful and difficult things that we like to ignore, whereas we love it when somebody sets, makes a rule, you know? Jesus says, you know, if, if St. Paul says, well, you know, a drunkard is not going to get into heaven, we think, all right, that's it. You know, drinking is sin. But if Jesus says, judge not, lest we be judged, suddenly we all turn into first century Jewish lawyers. You know, it's like, well, what he really meant there. <laughs> I think like, no, I think that he really meant that. He really meant, you know, judge not, lest he be judged. He really meant, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. He, he really meant these difficult things. And what I feel that Jesus was trying to do is he was trying to help us see the world as God sees it, as he saw it, uh, which is, is this act of love. Uh, and it's a very difficult thing to do. It takes a lifetime to get even close to it. Uh, we are always moving, hopefully moving toward it, but I'm not sure we can get to it on this side of the veil. But it, it, when, you, when you read his very, very difficult words, you start to think like, look, there are things, there are things that humans have to do. We have to uh, have justice. We have to protect people from uh, evildoers. Uh, we sometimes have to fight wars. Sometimes there's no way out of fighting wars. But we can see all of those things as happening in a history that is not, um, that is not, we can see all of those things as human beings, or we can see them as God sees them as part of this unraveling of history and, and of sin and of redemption. And I think that that's what Jesus was trying to get us to do. He wasn't so much like a lot of religion is don't do this or you'll be punished. Uh, and I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. He almost openly says that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if you see it this way, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. This little tiny thing that will be inside you will start to blossom uh, and become 
the the great living thing inside you. And I think that that that's the way I see the Bible. I see it as a as God. You know, G- Jesus wasn't kidding around. He was who he said he was, and the words that he said have a special meaning, even in the context of the text. After all, even the devil speaks in the Bible and quotes scripture. So it's like not everybody is in the in the, just because he's in the Bible is at the same level of truth as Jesus Christ. There's this sort of uh, movement among sort of you know right wing uh, figures to accept the um, premise. My bad to accept the results of Christianity, the ends of Christianity, but not to accept the premises of Christianity. I talked to Dennis Prager a few weeks ago, and Dennis does believe in God. Um, but I asked him this question. I said, if you knew without a doubt that there was no God, would you still choose to act as if there was one? Um, Jordan Peterson sometimes, and I don't, I don't know him personally, but sometimes he seems to um, argue for the conclusions of Christianity and the validity of Christ as the personification of that which is most ideal. Um, so I, I guess my question is, why accept the premises of Christianity when you can just live by the conclusions? Because you can also live by the conclusions of the Marquis de Sade. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and, and make sense. You know, I mean, I think that that was the thing. That's the thing that struck me about the Marquis de Sade was he made sense if the world it had no God in it. But I, everything in your heart and mind tells you that uh, he's, a, he's a psychopath and an evildoer, you know. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. One of my fa- I, I love Dennis Prager. I think he's a wonderful guy and a wonderful mind. He's almost, almost a, a rabbi. I mean, um, but, but he and I had a wonderful conversation once where he said, my God is a logical God. And the one thing I cannot believe about him is that he loves us is that he loves mankind. And I said, well, then why would you create, you know, what he's created? And there was a long pause. And he said, I don't know. And I think that that that's the thing. If you believe in in logic, and I do, uh, if you believe in reason, and I do, I think that you come to the conclusion that we're, we're living in an act of love. And, um, and I think that an idea that does doesn't make sense. This has been a, a, if you've read The Great Good Thing, you know this, this has been an obsession in my life. An idea that doesn't make sense will not stand. And one of the reasons the anti-God forces have made such uh, headway in our current culture is because people forgot what they were, why they believed what they believed. Christianity in America for a long time held such sway over the high ground of culture that people didn't have to explain themselves anymore. They simply had to declare their beliefs. And I think that that's a very weak position to be in because once the argument starts, if you can't explain why you think what you think, you're not going to win the argument. So I've heard a lot of people, Marcello Perez, an Italian philosopher, wrote a book, you know, why we should call ourselves Christians. Um, I just don't think that that's going to fly. I, I, don't believe in Christianity because I think it makes the world a better place. Jesus never said it was going to make the world a better place. He said the world was going to hate you the way it hated him. Uh, and, and so that's not why I believe it. I don't believe it because it's useful. I don't believe it because it's, it's good. I believe it because I'm certain it's true. Uh, and, and that's an act of faith because I can't ultimately prove it's true, but it makes sense of everything that I know to be true. And so it, it makes sense to me that it's true. I just don't believe that you can cling to a philosophy that makes no sense. Yeah, so you sort of reject the whole like utilitarian argument that you know we should do these certain good things because they're good for society and. 
Christianity, I don't believe this, but, um, and that Christianity is, is that which is most good for those in society to, to follow or believe in? No, in fact, I, I would say the opposite. I think, I think the fact that Christianity has created such good values and, and for me, the fact that it gives you such joy when you get it right, you know, uh, I think that's evidence of its truth. You know, it's kind of it's kind of a backward thing to say that, wow, this has made everything better. It's made people better. It's made society. It's gotten us closer to true values. Let's continue to pretend that it's real. But what you should really say is, hmm, you know, that's kind of evidence that this is the truth. I mean, after all, that's all that science does. You know, science doesn't have any ultimate truth. It just tests things against reality. And I think that when you test Christianity against reality, it comes out really, really well, uh, especially especially in, in terms of joy, which I believe is spiritual coin. And when I say joy, I don't mean happiness. I don't mean smiley face stupidity. I mean uh, a gusto for life uh, and, a, and a belief in life and a, a life in abundance, as, as Jesus himself said. Uh, that's what I mean by joy. And I think that uh, I, I've never seen anything or experienced anything that delivered joy at the level that Christianity does. And, and again, I'm a very practical person. If I thought I was just believing it for fun or because it was useful, I'd stop. I, I, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here because it has never failed failed me in understanding the world. I, when I uh, converted, which happened to me late in life, I was uh, almost 50, um, Yeah, I said to myself, if this makes me a fantasist, if this separates me from uh, realism, if this turns me into a smiley-faced idiot of some sort, uh, I, I'm gonna, I'll stop. I will stop. But in fact, the exact opposite happened. I've become much more realistic, uh, much more clear-eyed. I, I understand the world much better. I, I expect things to happen that do happen. Uh, and all of the evidence of, of a true philosophy or a true outlook uh, has, has come to pass and come to be real. And so I've continued deeper and deeper into it. Well, thank goodness you didn't become a uh, Christian Hallmark writer. Um, but uh, all, all, all jokes aside, um, in your book, the, um, the <clears throat> great good thing you talk about when you were at Berkeley and this massive stack of books that piled up that you did not read. And yeah. then you talk about how throughout life you, you will that stack down and read even more. Um, so I, I want to yeah. ask, you know, the great sort of Harold Bloom question. Um, what would be on the, uh, Andrew Clavin, um, Western canon reading list? Well, certainly for me, I mean, I can never answer the question, what's your favorite uh, book? Because I've, I've read so many, <laughs> and there's so many favorites. But certainly uh, for me, the, the most important book in my life has been Crime and Punishment by uh, Dostoevsky. It changed my life. I was, I was in college when I read it, read it first. I was 19 or so. And uh, that, that re moral relativism was first kind of percolating up into the academic world, the idea that nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so, that all cultures are, you know, morally the same. And that is essentially what Dostoevsky was foreseeing when he wrote that novel uh, about the moral universe. And it, it convinced me that, no, that was not true. That, that I knew at least that was not true. And that set me on the path. I think uh, everybody should read the dialogues of Plato, especially the dialogues dealing with the trial and execution of Socrates. I think um, Aristotle is a harder read, but at least you should read uh, uh, the ethics, the Nicomachean ethics. Um, and 
listen, there's so much entertaining literature too. I mean, you know, just reading a Christmas Carol uh, is is a wonderful experience. Uh, so many, uh, so many great things. And of course, of course, you, you should read Shakespeare. I mean, when people find, tell me they find it hard to believe in Jesus, uh, I tell them I find it much harder to believe in Shakespeare uh, because God can do anything, including incarnate himself. But how is a single man uh, put forward such a vast vision of what it means to be a human being in the world? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Shakespeare is, if you read Shakespeare and study him, you will understand what it means to be a human being. Uh, and uh, and I just think that um, to, to either not teach him or to teach him as some example of your particular theory um, is a, a crime. It's a sin. I, when I when I see that now students can get a, an English degree, you can get a degree in English literature without reading Shakespeare. I just think like, you should get your money back. You know, that's that's ridiculous. I think everybody should read Paradise Lost by John Milton. A wonderful, wonderful uh, rendering of the uh, Genesis story. Uh, gee, I could go on. For, you asked me that question. I could go on forever, so I'll just leave it there. It's it's one of those questions where it is a a a list which which never ends. I I also kind of want to pick your brain about the books and the authors that have influenced your suspense writing. I mean, I I think maybe G.K. Chesterton comes to mind. You know, maybe maybe Hemingway. But who has an as an author has influenced your more suspense? crime sort of writing well i for, i think the the american tough guy writers hemingway but also uh, the detective writers joshua hammett and raymond chandler uh, had an immense effect on me and they really started me on this path um i i, I want to take this moment to just say i have a new christmas mystery i hope uh, you'll take a look and see what i've learned uh, but but these guys you know i was in a, a situation where my father and i really didn't have a good relationship and I didn't really feel I had a model of manhood uh, that, that suited who I was. And these tough guy writers gave me that. And I, I sort of thought when I saw Raymond Chandler's detective, uh, Philip Marlowe, uh, I thought, yes, you know, this is what a man is. This is what I want to be like. And, and uh, Chandler wrote of Philip Marlowe, uh, down mean streets, this man must go, who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. And I thought that's who I want to be in a corrupt world, uh, in, a, in a world that can be very tarnishing. I want to stay as, as have as much integrity as I can possibly have. And what was interesting about that was by reading these detective story writers, and they were great, that Chandler's a great writer, but still he's a detective story writer. That led me to see, gee, you know, I see a lot of Arthurian themes in, in these writers and Hemingway and, and, and uh, Hammett and Chandler. Chandler compared his detective to a knight in shining armor. That led me to, to read the Arthurian uh, myths and legends. Uh, and that was so imbued with Christianity that that led me to read the gospels. And so uh, it was it was an interesting chain of thought that led me to that. And uh, I write in my memoir about how my father, you know, we were a Jewish family. Uh, my, it was very important to my father that we were Jewish, even though he didn't believe really in any of it. But it was important for the cultural reasons. Uh, and when he walked in on me and discovered me reading the Gospel of Luke, um, he was furious uh, and, and screamed at me for a long time, which always is kind of sad, but it also is hilarious when you think about what you could walk in on your 15-year-old son reading. Uh, you know, he was upset because it was the gospel according to Luke. Uh, you know, so that, but, but it was a, a hostile environment for that because Jews feel threatened by Christians for perfectly good and valid reasons. 
um, historical reasons. But uh, but that was the path that led me to at least discover the Bible as literature. And it was discovering the Bible as literature that ultimately led me back around in a circle uh, to come back to it in, uh, in faith. Two, uh, two questions, uh, two serious questions before we, before we go and before we leave it. Um, the first one is I'm, I'm a college student and there is a uh, pandemic of, of mental health problems, it seems, among young people, among college students and beyond. And you talk about in your book, the, the great good thing about your own sort of struggles, your first year at Berkeley and even throughout the early to mid part of your life. Um, what, what would you say to people who are struggling with, with those same issues, the, the same sort of darkness, the, the, the blues, whatever you want to, to call it, um, any, any tips that you have, any, any advice that you'd offer them? Yeah, you know, one thing is you were not made to be miserable. And, and this is a thing that is really important. I think it was Carly Simon sang a song, it's hip to be miserable when you're young and intellectual. And for a long time, I sort of thought that was true. I thought that I was miserable uh, because I was just so brilliant that I, you know, I could see the tragedy of the world as more clearly than other people's people could. And then I thought, no, I'm, I'm actually miserable because I'm out of my mind. I'm crazy. And I was incredibly blessed. And I really do believe it was God working in my life uh, to find a psychiatrist who, who cured me because I don't know that many people who've had that experience. I don't know that many people who have gone, as I like to say, have gone sane. Because I was really nuts, uh, and I really had a breakdown, and I was suicidal. And he saved me, and he rejiggered my consciousness so that I was on a much firmer footing. And so I would say, you know, don't be afraid to get help. Don't be don't be uh, convinced that you have to live this way. You were not made to be miserable. Uh, you were made to live in in joy, even in sadness. Even in sadness, you can have gusto and have joy. <clears throat> That's one thing. The other thing is, we are in the midst of one of the revolutionary experiences of the human consciousness, which is the invention of the internet. And I know a million people have spilled a zillion words uh, on studying this, but you have to remember that when you're in the midst of something, no matter how smart you are, it's hard to step back and get a, a bird's eye view of it and really understand what's happening to us. And I, I think it would do everybody uh, a lot of good uh, to stop being online so much and to gather together in, in person and discuss values without fear. And our universities, the, the, the internet has fed into the power structure of people who do not believe your individuality exists. They, they, they don't believe it exists. And they, if it does exist, they think it's getting in their way. Uh, of make, for their way of making money, of making the world a better place, of saving the climate, whatever they think they're doing, uh, your individuality is getting in the way. And I think college students, especially, especially, even if they have to leave campus to do it, should be gathering together at least once a week and arguing and discussing things in a free forum uh, where there is absolutely no internet uh, available and no way of recording it and no backlash against anything you say. I think that you should be able to explore your feelings about race, your feelings about gender, your feeling that without people condemning you or tearing you apart, you should be, you cannot think, you cannot think if you cannot talk, you cannot talk if you cannot argue, and you cannot argue if you can't, and you can't 
argue without learning how to reason. And I think that this has been stripped of us and it's being stripped of us on purpose by people with power who want you not to exist as an individual and get in their way. And so I think that this is a movement that should start. I think that young people, college students especially, have got to uh, be free to speak and to argue and to think things that you're not allowed to think. And, and yeah, will you sometimes say things that are bad? Hey, absolutely. You know, will you sometimes think, gee, I, I said that. And when it came out of my mouth, I suddenly realized what a terrible thing it was. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But I tell the story of, about an argument I got in with probably my oldest friend when I was many, many years ago, I mean, a hundred years ago, uh, when I was uh, arguing in favor of abortion and he was arguing against it. And abortion was very key to my identity. Being pro-abortion was very key to my identity as an intellectual, uh, as a coastal city dweller, uh, as a, a liberal, all those things. And we argued to two o'clock in the morning uh, with many beers and we're, sh we're shouting at each other in friendship, but we were really going at it. And I went to bed that night and I thought, I lost that argument. And the fact is, when I'm right, I don't lose arguments. I'm, I'm good at arguing. And when I'm right, I, I don't lose them. And it took me 20 years to accept it. It took me 20 years to say, you know, that argument was right. But what a, what a thing that is, what a gift that is, uh, to be able to say something and have somebody argue with you and think, ah, I got to change that. I got to do better. I've got to make sense. Uh, and, and I think that that gift has been stripped of college students. And no wonder they're going nuts. You know, when I give speeches, I haven't done it since the pandemic, but when I was giving speeches, I would sometimes get up and say, listen, I, I'm an old guy and I, I don't know about your lives, but when I look around, young women seem miserable to me. And when I finish my speech, I would like any young women here who think I'm wrong to get up and tell me that I'm wrong because I'd be happy to hear it. No one, not one woman has ever gotten up and told me I was wrong. Many have gotten up and said, yes, you're right. We are miserable. Well, Why? Why aren't they getting together and saying, why are we miserable? What's wrong with us? They're not doing it because they're told not to do it. They're told what their values should be. They're told that if they have other values, if they have other yearnings, uh, if they have something that doesn't fit in with the current uh, trend, uh, they shouldn't be allowed to say it and they shouldn't think it. And if you don't get away from that hive mind, uh, it's going to consume you. Final question. I think that the great good thing needs one more chapter. Um, throughout throughout um, your book, you talk about individuals and stories of when you had epitomies. And oftentimes these epitomies are brought on um, by, by God working through someone else. Uh, an example would be Carter, baseball player. You know, he says that line, sometimes you just have to play in pain when you're, when you're contemplating suicide. Uh, another would be after you were a young man coming back from New Orleans and you were sick and the elderly Texas, Texan black gentleman um, sort of helps you get well again. Um, I guess the question that I'm getting at is, is there going to be a, another chapter about when you go from sort of you go to sort of paying it forward, if you will, when you go to sort of uh, uh, an epitome in someone else's life that maybe God used you to bring on. Well, it, this has been one of the probably the most gratifying things that has happened to me since since my baptism is the fact that through my books and through my uh, podcast, which really uh, brought me to a whole new audience of, of younger people, um, 
I get this letter a lot that, you know, you moved me off the dime. I had drifted away from God. I've gone back to God. Um, it is, it never fails to touch me more even than what you would think would be a writer's favorite thing is, Oh, you're, you know, you, this is my favorite book of yours. And this book was so exciting. I, you know, obviously I love to hear that. I've got an ego like anybody, and especially artists have big egos, but, but this thing that, you know, you, you moved me to go back and look again, uh, you 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 blew me uh, out of the the hole that I was in and made me go back to see it. The, the idea, you know, it's a great question because the idea that somebody might one day speak of me the way I speak of those people you mentioned uh, that that somewhere because uh, in that moment uh, that was uh, the lowest moment of my life. I was this close to uh, opting for suicide, and this guy speaks randomly, not to me, but reaches me because of what he said. Uh, the idea that you might be speaking into a, somebody else's darkness is incredibly moving to me and incredibly important to me. And I think about it all the time. I think about it with every word I write. And it's the prayer I say every morning that the words that I write and the words that I speak will reach into somebody's darkness and, and bring them out. And I, uh, you can only hope that's true. Andrew Cliven, thank you so much for your time today. It's great talking to you. Thanks.